0: 5 this morning as we continue in our series through Ephesians. We'll be looking at verses 15 through 20. You can find the text on page 978 in the Blue ESV Bible. The title of our sermon is A Spirit-Filled Life, and the key words for our worshipers in training are Spirit, Time, and Heart. Have you ever met someone and wondered how in the world it was that they were able to do all that they're able to do with the same amount of hours in a day that you have? Every one of us is given 24 hours each and every day, and some people have an amazing ability to be incredibly productive and useful with those 24 hours. Others seem to have an uncanny ability to squander it all away. And of course, we all tend to look at our days and wonder, where did the time go? I wonder if you've ever taken the time to evaluate the hours of your day. Where does your time go? How much of your day is spent doing things like being entertained, movies and television and social media? Did you know the average adult spends 33 hours per week watching television? That's almost as much time as we spend at work. The average American has five social media accounts now and spends almost two hours every day browsing those networks. Teenagers are now thought to be spending up to nine hours per day on average consuming media. And what about you? How much of your time is spent doing these kinds of things? How much of your time is spent doing something meaningful, engaged in quality relationships or activities? And it's likely that any real assessment of each and every one of our days would be quite surprising to most of us. What consumes our time? Are are we focused mostly on our hobbies and our recreation and our entertainments? Now, none of these are inherently wrong or evil in and of themselves, but what priority do we give them in our lives? It seems that almost everyone is always pressed for time. In our culture, in our day, one of the most popular responses to the generic question, how are you doing, is, I'm very busy. A lot of times we can't explain what we're busy doing or what exactly we've accomplished, but be assured we're very busy. Busy going here, doing this, doing that, but where or what are hard to define. They're easily forgotten because it doesn't always amount to much. Is it possible to be a person like those we look at and say, how did they do all of those things within the same 24 hours that I have? I've often marveled, I've been amazed at men like Charles Spurgeon and John Calvin or even today, theologians like D.A. Carson and and J.I. Packer and Albert Moeller, when I see all the things they've written, all of the things they've preached, I just wonder where all of their time comes from. I wish I was that productive. I wish I used my time as wisely as them and, and looked at every moment of every day as an opportunity to do as much as can be done that's useful for the kingdom of God and His people For many years, the most popular philosophy of a young generation in our culture was that of existentialism. The basic conclusion of existentialism is that everything is meaningless... A really chipper uh, philosophy, which eventually gave way to the philosophy of postmodernism The very popular notion today that meaning and truth are determined by everyone's own personal desires. The height of existential ideas was the 1960s. And from the 1960s we received songs like Nowhere Man by the Beatles. Listen to these lyrics. He's a real, you're singing it in your head, I know. He's a real nowhere man, sitting in a nowhere land, making all his nowhere plans for nobody. Doesn't have a point of view, knows not what he's going to. Isn't he a bit like you and me? Well, is he a bit like you and me? Do you look at the fruit of your days and conclude, it's going nowhere? Do you ever have a concern that what you do and how you spend your life and your days and your time are actually quite meaningless? It's an important question. A lot of us aren't willing to ask the question because we're afraid of the answer to that question. But it's an important question, and the Apostle Paul is going to challenge us to consider how it is we are walking through this life. Are we nowhere men and women making nowhere plans, heading for a nowhere destination? Or is there something more important that we're called to in our lives with our time? What do your 24 hours look like each and every day? Are you pleased with what you see? Well, let's read beginning in verse 15. Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul writes, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we look at the text, we're going to actually start in the middle of the text and then look at all of the surrounding verses after that. So look again with me at verse 18. We see our first point this morning is that Christians must live spirit-filled lives. Verse 18, again, he says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now central to this entire section and our understanding of how how it all comes together is this key imperative from the Apostle Paul to be filled with the Spirit. And that raises a lot of questions for us that we need to consider. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? What does it look like to be filled with the Spirit? How can I be filled with the Spirit? How can I know if I am filled with the Spirit? But before we answer those questions, there's something else that we need to think about. Maybe it struck you as odd. It did me as as I read through this text. You get in this passage, and then all of a sudden it seems random that the Apostle Paul mentions the issue of drunkenness. What does being drunk with wine have to do with everything else that he's dealing with here? And particularly this issue of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, there's two things that we need to think about with regard to this being drunk and being filled with the Spirit. Namely, how the two are alike and how the two are different. What is the relationship here between the two? First, how are they alike? And there's only one way that I can see that they are alike. Remember in Acts chapter 2, we read about the day of Pentecost... "...when the Holy Spirit fell upon the disciples, and they began to speak the Word of God in foreign tongues. And they were doing so with a boldness, with a joy, and with a fluency that was so different than what everyone had seen of them before. It was so seemingly out of character for the disciples that everyone who was looking on said, "...they are filled with a new wine." That's a really nice way of saying, those guys are drunk." They had the good stuff, the strong stuff they thought. Some people have taken this and they've, they've twisted it in some terrible ways, thinking to be filled with the Spirit means to fall over and to laugh uncontrollably and to do foolish and, and really wicked things, claiming to be overpowered by the Holy Spirit in such a way that their, their physical and their mental capacities are out of their own personal control, and they call it being drunk with the Spirit. But that's nonsense. That can't be true, because the fruit of the very same Spirit that they're supposedly drunk by is self-control. But what was going on with the disciples being filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost that had everyone saying they must be drunk? What was it about what they were doing? Well, a good place to start is to think about what the disciples were like before Pentecost. They were timid. They were scared. Many of them were in hiding at this point. They didn't want to be seen. They didn't want to be heard. Remember back when Jesus was being crucified, they didn't even want to be identified with him. But now, all of the sudden, they are bold. They are not only Opening their mouths and talking about Jesus, they're doing it out in the open and they're doing it loudly. They're proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ without fear for their lives. Everyone saw men who were brave and bold and filled with this overwhelming joy despite all of the possible repercussions. So the only conclusion that anyone could draw from these men who were once so quiet and timid and yet now all of a sudden are so bold is that they're drunk. There's no other explanation. They must be drunk. Now we've all likely been around someone who is very drunk and we know what that looks like. A person's inhibitions break down. They have a courage that they didn't seem to have before to say and do things that they wouldn't do when everything was intact. Sometimes people talk about having liquid courage and they talk about being loosened up by alcohol. Their minds not being as restrained and their thoughts and reasoning is, are, are not all there because alcohol has taken some of that away. So there's, there's this certain supposed bravery and happiness that can be observed that isn't there when a person is sober. So to see the dramatic shift in the disciples, many people, mockers mainly, concluded it must be wine that these guys are drinking. But their boldness was not from wine. Their boldness was from the Holy Spirit. Now, in terms of similarity, that's really the only comparison we can make, because the Apostle Paul's admonition is to not get drunk with wine. And he points out in passing that to do so is debauchery. It's an excessive indulgence. It's it's this abuse of alcohol, which is in and of itself a gift from God, but it's, it's being abused. When you're drunk, your perception of reality is greatly diminished. And if you're a Christian, one of the marks of being a Christian, as we've already mentioned, is self-control. So the admonition is to not be controlled by alcohol, to not allow it to be something that changes your mental capacity, your ability to think and reason and articulate, but instead be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit brings about courage and joy. Not by showing you less of reality, like being drunk does, but by showing you more of reality. I hope you understand the difference. Drunkenness alters your thinking in such a way that your perception of reality is diminished. You see less of reality. You think you're funny and all of that sort of thing when someone is drunk. They do things they would never do before because they think they're something different than what they are. Reality is diminished. But the Spirit brings about courage and joy by giving you more real and a more full picture of what is actually going on. Because He's revealing to you the reality of your own heart, your own standing before God, your need for redemption, the reality of the world that you live in. Remember in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah has a vision of the Lord, of the enthroned Jesus Christ. He wasn't brought to worship because his perception of reality was diminished. No, his perception of reality was heightened. It was far greater. And he was brought to say, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord, of hosts perhaps you know the story from second kings chapter 6 the prophet elisha was with his servants and he was able to report back to the king of israel what the king of syria was thinking and saying and planning in his own bedroom he was prophesying and it was spoiling the plans of the syrians so he sends His army, the Syrian king, sends his army to surround Elisha where he was. And the text says in in verse 14 of 2 Kings 6, He sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. Well, early the next morning, Elisha sends out a servant to see what was going on, and the servant reports back to Elisha. And he is filled with fear. He said, All around us is an overwhelming force. They are going to destroy us. They're going to wipe us out. But Elisha wasn't afraid. Elisha had courage, Elisha had joy. Now, in order to calm down his servant, what he could have done is said, Hey, we still have some wine over here. Why don't you drink some of this wine? It'll calm you down. It'll get you ready for battle. We can go out. You're better off not knowing what's ahead of us anyway. You're better having a false perception of reality because this is going to be ugly. Maybe that would have helped him through the situation with courage. But what does Elisha do instead? He prays to God. Listen to his prayer. Oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he showed him not just the material world, but also he saw the spiritual, the supernatural world, and he saw in the mountains that they were filled with horses and chariots of fire all around them. You see, it wasn't having less of reality that helped the servant face the circumstances with courage. It was that he had more perception of reality. And that is what it is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We have a confidence because we see what's really going on. Not just these circumstances here in front of me. But the Lord has revealed what goes on in this world beyond what my eyes can see. That servant saw the hosts of God. He saw the angels surrounding them. He saw the supernatural world and began to realize that God is real and God is there and God is working out His plan and God is filled with power. That's the fullness of the Spirit. That's the fullness of the Spirit that is giving us joy and courage. Not by showing you less of reality, but by showing you more of reality. Showing you God and what He's doing and that He has a plan in all of it. The Holy Spirit's job is to take all the things that God is doing, all the things God has done in Christ, all the things that Christ has done for you, all the things that you are in Christ as one of His children and communicate that to you in such a way that the reason of your mind is so fixed and and it's so deep in the emotions of your heart, of who God is and what He has done, and especially what He has done in Christ, becomes the controlling power in your life. It dominates you so that things that used to deflate you don't deflate you anymore. The things that used to inflate you don't inflate you anymore. The things that used to scare you don't scare you anymore because you see reality. Alcohol is a depressant. It gets rid of all of your negative thoughts. It gets rid of fears by depressing parts of your brain, showing you less of reality. But the fullness of the Spirit is not something that helps you forget your troubles. It actually shines a bright light on them. But it comes with the answer that there is a response and there is a help in times of trouble. C.S. Lewis once said, I didn't go to Christianity to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. And that's true, isn't it? This isn't about some false hope, some false reality to help you forget your troubles. It's about a heightened, intensified understanding of the truth of who God is and what he's doing in this world that enables you to walk confidently and joyfully in the midst of trials and difficult circumstances and all the pressures of life in a fallen world. Brothers and sisters, we should not be seeking to always ignore or have have no understanding of what's going on in the world around us in terms of things that are evil. We have to realize that they are going on and see them for what they are, to call evil evil, and to not be fearful of them, but to recognize that the Lord has provided all the answers that are necessary. I was once by the bedside of a very dear Christian man in the final moments of his life, and He hadn't been able to speak clearly for a few years after many strokes and deterioration in his life. And right before he died, he began lifting his hands up to the sky above his head. And one of his daughters said, oh, he must see something. He must be reaching out to the angels that are bringing him to heaven. And the hospice nurse that was by the bedside with us said, very gently, very appropriately, she said, the medication he's on keeps him comfortable but it often causes involuntary movements, it produces an altered mental state. But the reality was that his daughter didn't want to know what was actually going on. She didn't want to have trust that her father's eternal future rested on the promises of God and those who were in Christ, that they would rest in the promise that we have from his word. She wanted some kind of alternative reality that she could point to. She wanted to hope in something else that she could find comfort from. She wasn't a Christian, so she thought she needed something other than what God had said to be true in order to give her hope that she wanted. So she turned to that nurse and she said, Well, this is what I want to believe, so please don't say that again. This gives me comfort. Now, without trying to be insensitive to those that grieve and struggle so deeply when they lose someone they love to death... I certainly obviously have no way of knowing exactly what's going on in a person's mind right before they die. But what this woman was saying was, I don't want to know about what you're telling me as being true. I want to have an altered state of reality in order that I can find hope and joy in something else. I'd prefer not to live life in the realness of this moment, in the reality of this situation. I want to create another environment for me to live life in. you know that's so common in life today? It's so rare to hear people talk about death and dying or someone having died. We talk about their passing away or their departing. We're so afraid to say those words. But for you and I, dear Christian, the fullness of the Spirit dwelling within us is providing us with the ability to look reality dead in the face, to not hide from it, to not run from it, to not deny it or try to explain it away, but to know that our rest and our hope and our joy and our courage comes from an ultimate reality that is far more significant than the circumstances of my life here and now. So I don't need to diminish what's true I don't need to talk about it in a way other than what it is. I can actually have what's true, even when it's hard. I can have it heightened. I can have it intensified. Because when I'm living a spirit-filled life, I have a moment-by-moment awareness of God and my salvation in Christ that dominates life in a way that nothing else does. No fear does, no danger does, nothing does because you see all of reality. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. So what does that produce in our lives? Look back again in verses 15 through 17. And our second point this morning is that if we are living Spirit-filled lives, we will make the best use of our time. When I read verse 15, he says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. I have in my mind a picture of a scene from Mission Impossible. When your hero walks into the room, it's protected by an alarm system like you've never seen before, and it's got laser beams shooting in every direction. You know what I'm talking about. And if you, trip the, if you walk through the wrong laser beam, all the doors will shut and lock and everything... All the guards will come and it's all over from there. Um, So in order for him to make it through unscathed, he has to take very careful, very meticulous, very well-planned steps around the beams so as not to get caught. I still can't figure out why they don't just make the beams invisible, so he doesn't know where to step, but that's uh, maybe in the future. Um, One wrong move for him and it's all over. And Paul's admonition to the believers that we not walk through life without plans and our, our focus, not set on those things which God calls us to as His people. We're called to walk in love and in light of wisdom. We, we must be watchful. We must tread carefully. We must not rush foolishly ahead without any consideration of consequences, but we must consider every step in wisdom. We must... Step carefully and wisely. So Paul implores us to make the best use of our time because the days are evil. He's literally saying that we are to be buying up the time. In other words, that we're not letting our days go to waste. We're not letting it sit and pass away, but we're buying it up. We're making use of it. Now, this isn't the only instance when the Apostle Paul uh, warns us about letting time go by idly. we were warned that being unproductive and unplanned can easily lead to sin. In 2 Thessalonians 3, 11, Paul implies that idleness is something to be aware of and avoided. He writes, We hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. The people were not buying up time. They were just going with the flow and letting things happen as they may. And so they were tempted to meddle in other people's business out of boredom. He explains further in 1 Timothy 5.13. They learned to be idlers, going about from house to house, not only idlers but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. These people weren't making the best use of time. In fact, their lack of focus on rightly using time led to sin. The Proverbs have a lot to say about idleness and and not giving proper effort to things that matter. Proverbs 18.9 says, One who is slack in his work is brother to one who who destroys. So when we don't buy up the time, we can be destructive. When When we don't plan to be useful and productive with our time, we'll be tempted to do something sinful. That's what's intended by Paul's warning in verse 16. Make the best use of your time because the days are evil. In other words, you live in a sinful, fallen world. So if you have nothing to do, the devil will be happy to tempt you to find something to occupy your time that won't bring glory to God and focus to His kingdom. Consider your own life. When have you been most tempted to sin? When have, you, uh, when have you committed the most grievous sins in your life? Was it because you were planning out your time and considering how it could be used to fulfill what God has called you to as, as His child? Or was it in times of idleness? Instead of planning to be productive, instead of planning to be useful or to do good, we have a tendency to just think, well, we'll just see what happens. And what happens is our idle minds focus on sinful desires which give birth to sinful thoughts and actions. We must look carefully how we walk. We must consider where we're placing our feet and the direction we're going. That we would buy up the time and use it in a way that is meaningful and not just fritter it away. So Paul goes on to exhort us in verse 17, Be aware, don't be foolish, know the will of the Lord. In other words, don't behave like people who don't know any better, but set yourselves to understanding and doing what the Lord wills in your life. What commitments does the Lord want you to take on? What commitment does He want you maybe to drop? One of the reasons we've sought in this church to encourage everyone to have a plus one service they're involved in Uh, is found right here. If you're not familiar, plus one is our way of encouraging service within the local church. The first priority is that every one of us is actively engaged in the weekly worship of God on the Lord's Day like we're doing right now. That's a given for every Christian. Every Christian should be worshiping the Lord on the Lord's Day. But every Christian should also have at least one other way they're serving in the body of Christ. That's your plus one. What is yours? How is that plus one being worked out? And how are you giving yourself to that in such a way that pleases God? Because you're making the best use of your time when you're doing it. At the very least, we can say to verse 17 that we know what the will of the Lord is in our giving service to the local church. He wants his children to serve within the body of Christ, that the church may be edified and built up and strengthened by their gifts. He has given gifts to each and every one of us. Don't depend on your own wisdom to figure out what He wants. Don't regard the advice of others as the ultimate approval of what you do with your time and your gifts. Look to God's Word. It is the will of the Lord that we must be most concerned with. And He has revealed it to us. And it works in conjunction with the Spirit that is indwelling us when we buy up the time seeking to walk carefully and wisely, knowing what to do in the will of the Lord, we are living Spirit-filled lives. And lastly, Paul shows us in our third point this morning, if we're living Spirit-filled lives, we will have thankful, joyful hearts. You see in verses 19 and 20. And what does a Spirit-filled life look like? Paul gives us examples. Specifically, he points to four different things. Three of them we're going to look at this morning and the fourth we'll, we'll get to next time. The, fourth, uh, the first thing he shows us is that the Spirit-filled life includes our addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I hope you see here that all of us have, as the church, an obligation in the edification of the entire body of Christ. Coming together... For worship is not just about me. You'll hear people talk about me and Jesus, or I'm here so I can be fed, so I can grow, so I can be encouraged, so I can get what I need for the week ahead. Now, There's some of that that exists in our worship, certainly. But as with all the rest of the Bible, verse 19 seems to be pointing us not to ourselves, but to others and to God. Part of our worship is singing. The primary reason we sing, Paul shows us here, is what? To address one another. There is a horizontal dimension to our worship as we gather. So we want to ensure that what we sing is true, that it is substantive, so that we can actually edify one another with the words we're singing, right? I hope you know a lot of thought and effort goes into this element of our worship as we gather each week that we can actually edify one another by the words. We don't just pick songs to sing because they're, they sound good or they're fun. We want substance. We want to be edified and built up as the body while we're singing songs to one another. I don't know about you, but I am far more edified when I'm reminded by you singing to me a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood, or mortal ills prevailing. That is, those are some powerful words. And that is far more edifying than if you were to sing to me, draw me close to you, never let me go, over and over again. Chuck Colson once wrote, We've been led through endless repetitions of a meaningless ditty called draw me close to you, which had zero theological content and could just as easily be sung in any nightclub. When I thought it was finally and mercifully over, the music leader beamed. Let's sing it again, shall we? He asked. No, I shouted loudly enough to send heads all around me spinning while my wife Patty cringed. And you get the point. We need to be mindful of what we're communicating to God, about God, and to one another. In praising God, we should be consciously directing our worship to the edification of the body of Christ. So that means that all of us should be singing. You shouldn't just stand and listen. I've heard some of you, you're not all good singers, I'm sorry. However, don't just stand there. We all need to be singing because this isn't about how we sound. It's about what we're saying and what it's communicating to one another and to the Lord. And as Christ ministers to others by extending Himself for them, when we worship with the needs of others as our concern, then we are ministering Christ to others. And consequently, we're being filled by His Spirit. The second thing we see in verses 19 and 20 is that the Spirit-filled life is singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Again, verse 19, is our worship is not merely a formula. It's not a bunch of motions or incantations that we go through. It should be a true expression from our hearts, our hearts of love and thankfulness for God. We really are singing to the Lord, and we're doing so to honor Him in our worship, and we direct our hearts and our minds and our affections toward the Lord and our singing to Him and about Him. And when we do that, we're filled with the Holy Spirit. So there's, there's something really fascinating going on here. Since we are filled with the Holy Spirit as believers already, our God is both the hearer and receiver of our worship, and He's also the one giving voice to our praise. We are the instrumentality by which God becomes present in praise to Himself. And that really brings a wonderful richness to the meaning of the psalmist's observation that God inhabits the praise of His people. The realization that we are generating the voice of God for the praise of God in our worship makes our praise more glorious than we could normally imagine. And it should give our sinful hearts more hope in the realization of the spiritual power by which He can use us to praise Him as well as speak to His people. I hope we keep that in mind as we sing together, even here in a few moments, as we sing, that we're singing to one another, and the Lord, by the Holy Spirit within us, is giving voice to the very words of praise that He desires to hear. Well, the third thing we see in the Spirit-filled life of joy is that we are giving thanks. A a Spirit-filled believer gives thanks. If you are a Christian, this is the overflow of your heart. Now, apart from Christ... It is completely unnatural. Notice what he says. Give thanks always and for what? He says for everything. What does that mean? How is that even possible? It's easy to understand that we should express thanksgiving for God's blessings in our lives, but what about all the other stuff? What about the trials? What about difficulties? Are we to give thanks for those things? Well, let's not be too hasty and say that we give thanks for things that God hates. So Paul doesn't mean that we thank God for our sin or for injustice or for evil. But as spirit-filled believers, we praise God for everything that magnifies the name of our Savior. So to the extent that our trials and difficulties and suffering bring glory to God and make us more dependent upon God and enable us to to see His comfort and give His comfort to others, give the church opportunities to bless the body of Christ, see the eternal promises of God fulfilled, in all of that we give thanks. Even when it's difficult, even when it's very, very hard and trying, even when it involves suffering in our lives. Stars shine brighter in the desert. Diamonds sparkle more brightly against black velvet and sometimes the glory of God is magnified more intensely in our trials and in our suffering. And so even in darkness we give thanks because the glory of Christ is all the more evident. The Spirit that dwells within you searches everything, even the depths of God, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. If you trust Him, He will unfold for you how your omnipotent and all-wise Father in Heaven can even take the evils of the world, can even take all of that and work it all together for your eternal good. And when He begins to teach you that lesson, you will experience the truth and the depth of the fact that the days are evil, and yet you can always give thanks for everything to God the Father. He is wise and He is sovereign And he is good. Brothers and sisters, are you thankful for all that God brings to pass because you know ultimately it is for his glory and for the good of his people? It is for the good of his church, and that is great news, even when it seems in the midst of circumstances that it's devastating news. Friend, perhaps you don't give thanks to God in all things. And maybe that even sounds strange to you because you're not filled by the Holy Spirit of God. Do you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God? Well, first, you have to be filled with Christ. You have to become like a little child. You have to rely on Him alone for salvation. You can't come to God and say, Oh Lord, please receive me because what i've done or because of who i am you can't live up to the standard that god has set down so your works are worthless in terms of god accepting you and granting you eternal life you and i and everyone else has failed to do that but christ hasn't and if you are in christ and christ is in you there's hope And if you are not in Christ, he calls on you today to trust in him, to repent of your sin and to follow after him in love and faith and obedience. There's everlasting hope. There's eternal hope. And so instead, you don't say, Lord, look what I've done and look who I am. You say, oh, Lord, receive me by grace alone because of what Jesus has done. I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit that I might overflow in thankfulness knowing that Christ's work has counted as mine. In order to be filled with the Spirit, first you have to be filled with Christ. Are you filled with Christ? Brothers and sisters, as we are filled with Christ, we can walk faithfully as those who are filled with the Spirit. Taking inventory of our days being careful as we walk and making sure that we're buying up the time and using it well for His kingdom and for His glory. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You once again for Your Word and for the challenges You bring to us by Your Word to consider our own lives, to consider how we use our days, how our time is spent in the things that we do. I pray, Father, you help us all to be more mindful of how we can use what you have given us to be more productive for the sake of your kingdom. Because we want to live spirit-filled lives. We want to live lives where our eyes and our hearts are fixed upon Christ. And all that we do is an overflow of the thankfulness of our hearts as we serve Your body, as we serve one another, as we love our neighbors, as we work as unto You and not unto man, as we go into doing our hobbies and our recreations, that we do so with right hearts and attitudes, placing them rightly, not as our primary objectives in life, but as things that You've given us as gifts to enjoy, that we would give thanks to You. Help us, Lord, to not put our hope in the things of this world, but to rest upon Christ alone. We pray, Father, for those who do not know Christ, that You would send the Spirit to awaken them to new life, bring them from the dead, that they might walk faithfully and joyfully through this life with Christ alone. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.